0: Hi everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh I am so extra super sorry about how long this one has taken, but I promise I have an explanation. I'm in my 20s or maybe my 30s. Can't remember simple things. I left out my groceries, but as I'm sinking, I find myself thinking not of death or the world's great design, it's of all the books I read. I was nine. Okay, here's the thing. Aside from like normal, um, everyday stuff that uh, I have to do, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this book. And like, I don't want to make this like a super serious, intense episode or anything like that. But I did, this is my third attempt, by the way, of recording this. I've gotten like to 20 minute marks talking about Uh, this book in particular and then I've just like stopped because I'm like bro what the hell am I talking about like it's been hard for me to kind of organize myself I guess with this book because a lot is going on uh, in terms of plot and I think maybe that was half the reason why I was struggling so much with recording is just like the plot itself is like kind of complex and that's because this is like I wouldn't consider this like a high fantasy novel but like it is a fantasy novel and it's a bit different from like what we've been reading so far. So this, in terms of like structure and how the episodes are supposed to go, um, I found myself struggling a bit with that just because I'm like, I'm not too sure exactly how to critique fantasy novels, if that makes sense. Um, when I was in school and, you know, all we do is talk about books because I was an English major. So all the books that we would read were very like either like historical fiction or very like kind of sci-fi or Edgar Allan Poe or there's some sense of surrealism. That's the weirdest part is that like I know how to talk about surrealist fiction but in terms of fantasy I don't really have a ton of experience other than just reading it for enjoyment and then being like wow that was amazing and then like just moving on with my life or thinking about character choices and whatnot. Um, This one like I just... I'm confused on how to bring about it because in the past couple books that I've talked about, or at least in the past uh, two series and singular book that I've talked about, I've always brought in the author in some way, shape or form to talk about him. And this part, it is like so necessary that, um, that I'm almost confused on what to say about it. So here's the thing that i've been kind of conflicted with and it's in terms of like me as a reader if i want to do a reader response kind of reaction to this sort of series meaning i just do what i've always been doing which is like i read it and then i'm like oh well this kind of stood out to me as a symbol or this kind of made sense like this or i didn't really like this character or the plot was weird here you know stuff like that um in terms of that like it only felt i think i was making it a bigger deal because I knew who C.S. Lewis was. Like growing up as a Christian or being raised as like a a certain denomination of Christianity, I just remember like, and these aren't even from people who like went to the same church as me, just like people in general that I like bonded with because they also believed in the same kind of denomination or they just, you know, we believe in the same God, whatever. Uh, people that I would like meet and experience, like very highly revered C.S. Lewis. Um, So that's what makes like these books kind of really impactful. There's been like a lot of people who are like, that that I obviously love and respect, who are very strong in their faith and hold Narnia in like top level tier. Same, but they're also, you know, like the same people who hold Lord of the Rings in top level tier. And I did not grow up reading any of those as a child. So Narnia... I think just holds a lot of pressure just because the name C.S. Lewis is printed on it. He has had a big impact on his critiques and analysis of Christianity in general, while also not straying away from the faith. I think that's what makes him like a big deal is that he challenged and asked questions about his faith in creative ways or in his essays. But at the same time, he wasn't someone who decided or wanted to create his own denomination, if that makes sense. So if we're looking at this historically, like obviously Christianity has a big reputation of splitting off into separate denominations whenever people kind of disagree with how things are going or see some sort of injustice with a certain denomination, then they'll branch off and decide their own thing um, or interpret things a different way. So there's all these different denominations of Christianity. And I think that's why this makes this like so difficult basically is just because c.s lewis um is highly revered because he kind of opened up the door where it's like you can ask questions and still believe in this denomination if that makes sense so the main way that i decided last minute that i was like okay like what's like an easy way to kind of structure at least like this first um book oh my gosh i don't even know if i mentioned this in the episode it's okay we're not even six minutes in but the book that we're talking about obviously is the magician's nephew which is the uh prequel i guess is prequel the right word it's the prequel to uh the chronicles of narnia basically um and what this book essentially is is it's just kind of a genesis um opening the door to narnia basically before lucy as if you guys are familiar with the books or with the at least just the first movie of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, This is essentially how the door, like, okay, so we know the concept that Lucy opens the wardrobe and then goes into Narnia. So the prequel is basically how the door to Narnia gets opened, how it gets made, where does the wood to that door come from? That's basically what the entire book is about. Um, So when I say Genesis, I'm comparing it because it is very hard to ignore the biblical allegories in it. Um, but this book is essentially the genesis to the entire world of Narnia. So just like how genesis in Christian denominations is the beginning to our entire world as human beings. So that's how this is. And the importance of, of describing it in this sense is that if we're looking at the Bible, I'm trying to look at it as like from like a step back, not from like any kind of religious perspective or anything like that. But the Bible as a book, Genesis is an important section of the Bible because I know, I, don't, I just don't want people to come in here and be like all all sections of the Bible are important. Okay, I'm not trying to like say that, but as a, in terms of a book, this is why in particular Genesis is important, and the reason that it is important is because it's the introduction to absolutely everything that has to do with the way things are experienced, the way things are seen, and the way things are, um, and those three sections separately. So. When I say that, I mean that Genesis is important because it doesn't exactly hold the emotional influence that maybe a regular novel would hold, obviously, because this is like religious doctrine. Um, But at the same time, it's a clear example of uh, God showing when things got made, how they got made. Um, and how you should view them. And then this also follows along with even emotions. So the importance of Genesis being one of the most pivotal stories in Genesis being Adam and Eve and the creation of the world. Um, the story of Adam and Eve is some that's like widely talked about because for the longest time it was painted as a black and white picture. You know, God asked you guys not to do this thing. Uh, you guys disobeyed, you did do this thing, and that was the first sin of the world. Or some might argue or debate over this exactly what the first sin was. But um, because they're okay, sorry, I don't want to like dive too into this. But anyway, so in terms of that story with Adam and Eve and how things went about, this can also be described as one of the first stories or first introductions to like human emotion, whether it's, um, you know, there's there's jealousy, the first time jealousy is ever displayed happens in Genesis. The first time uh, anger is expressed, shame, guilt, uh, disobedience, you know, lying, all of that stuff. It all happens for the first time in Genesis. And each time God kind of intercepts or interrupts and says, hey, what's going on here? And they have to explain themselves. And then it's like, oh, thus the first feeling of shame was born. Um, Not saying that those humans created it, but it is just like an important book for the introduction of how these feelings come about and basically what it means to be human for the first time and God's response or doctrine in accordance to those kind of reactions and responses. So anyways, that is important. The reason if you if you're not familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, I'd say that that's probably the only uh, story in the book of Genesis that's important for the for what's going on in the magician's nephew right now um i'll briefly explain because i don't want to assume that everybody just knows the story of you know this specific religious doctrine even though i did grow up that way um so the story of adam and eve basically is about how god created man he created adam and then he created eve from the rib of adam so he took a part of adam and made a woman and said this is your companion uh, these are the rules you guys are gonna you guys are free to eat from the land. Here are all these animals, you know, just like basically it's a paradise situation. But then God says there is one tree. It's called the tree of knowledge and it ha- that has fruit that grows from it. Um, that's the only place that you can't eat from, actually. That's the one place. So of course, you know, the story will drift off to um, Eve going over to investigate kind of, or she's near the tree of knowledge. And she comes across a snake, as described in Genesis. She comes across a snake. And, um, well, he's actually not even a snake at the time, but she comes across a snake, and she has a good conversation without him with about him. And he says, um, basically the snake says, oh, why don't you eat from the tree of knowledge? Did you know that if you do eat from this tree, um, you become like God, actually. And that's why he doesn't want you to eat from it he doesn't want any competition he doesn't want people to be like him but you'll be exactly like God if you want and she's like kind of hesitant and is like no I don't think so and he's like no trust me like don't you want to have powers you're gonna be able to see things a lot differently everything's gonna change for you if you just if you just eat from it it's not you're not actually going to die or perish nothing bad will actually happen to you you're just gonna be more like God and she's like alright so she takes a bite from a fruit off of the tree and then goes over and offers it to adam as well and adam no questions asked supposedly uh, also eats the fruit and then suddenly they're aware that they're naked they suddenly feel shame they suddenly feel guilt they like suddenly have all of these like negative emotions basically of being a human where they're very consciously aware and care about what people think of them and how they look and what things are Um, And then God asks them, Hey, like, where are you guys? I saw you guys a second ago. What's going on? And they're like, don't look at us. We're naked. And that's how God knows. God says, who told you guys that you were naked? You guys didn't feel like this beforehand. I don't understand what's happening. Anyways, bottom line, this is known as human or man's first sin. And what comes of this is that God says like as a curse, it's not, it's not exactly phrased as a curse, but I'm saying that because it's the easiest way to understand it, honestly. And I no offense to God, I truly can't understand what other way to put it, but um basically he gets mad and he says like, as punishment, uh, the ground basically will not bear fruit willingly. Like you have to tend to garden work and take care of plants and figure it out yourselves. And then at the same time for women, uh, your punishment for not listening to me in this situation is to... Uh, basically have your period supposedly and also you're gonna like child labor is going to be kind of painful so this supposedly is the broader concept of things so i don't want anyone to come for me and be like actually it's a symbolism for this or actually the real depth to it is this like in terms of plot this is what i was always kind of gotten the gist of or at least what everyone else who i've interacted with who knows this story that's kind of like the general concept whether you're christian or not christian if you're christian you might describe this story a bit differently but in terms of like just a broader concept of things this is basically what the story is Um, and the reason that this is interesting is because there has been debate over how this has been perceived so i first heard about it the way that it was written in all children's books retellings of biblical stories which is like once upon a time god said let there be sun and there was sun god said let there be light and god said let there be this and there was this like it's very simplified down versions of the story and that's what it is for adam and eve as well it's a simplified version of the story of adam and eve which is basically just like oh like they didn't listen to god then they became shameful then god said therefore this this and this must happen why did you want to do this why did you disobey me and then it moves on to the next story Um, So that's the reason or that's the way that I first heard the story and the reason that this part in specific is interesting is that you know I owned a surplus of biblical retellings in kid version which is often if you've ever like as an adult if you've ever experienced the book of Genesis or any of the Old Testament books as an adult you know that these are not stories meant for children basically like they're not Fairy tale stories. They're not cute. They're not funny or witty or like silly or lighthearted or anything. They're very like intense, very brutal. Uh, the emotional response to some of these like behaviors or sins, I'm saying that in quotation marks, sins per se are very dramatic, often result in death or God striking people down. We've gotten The famous story of Noah's Ark in which God says that he's kind of sick of all people just being bad. So he chooses like a total of six people to live and then wipes the earth clean um, just to like, you know, get a fresh start, I guess. And didn't really lose sleep over killing most of the population, including most of the animals. But anyways, bottom line, all the stories in Genesis are pretty intense. So I bring this up because they're often retold in biblical retellings in children's books. And now we have yet another version of a biblical retelling in a children's novel, and that's essentially what I believe Narnia to be. Um, this book in particular is not very specific with how it aligns with the um, with the story specifically in Genesis of Adam and Eve. But it is especially important just because we need to start considering, Um, the simple questions of like, why, how, when, where, you know, like that kind of stuff. So we're going to talk about like, who, who's retelling this. And that is we've got C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis is a big Christian advocate um, for questioning your faith, uh, coming up with own solutions. I think he's, I think I read somewhere that he's pretty firm on like, oh, we should have continued maybe writing the Bible a little bit or like it should continue to change every single day or whatever. But he's very famous for all of his beliefs, his most popular book being Mere Christianity, which is basically, I think, um, an analysis of the entire doctrine and his entire opinion on it. Um, But there are a lot of people in Christian doctrines who uh, really believe in everything that he says and agree with his scholarly take on biblical issues, which is something I'm familiar with being like a kind of a difficult topic to dive into honestly mad respect for anyone who feels the courage to critique uh religion openly especially christianity um so he was a big critic on that so we've got who we've got c.s lewis is writing and these are children's books um and then what are they they're going to be retellings of uh famous biblical stories basically in a different concept and the main question we want to maybe dissect is maybe when and why. So one thing we would like to maybe talk about is when were these published? I believe these were published in maybe, um, I believe when was the first one published? Because I remember in the introduction episode, um, In the introduction episode, I mentioned that this book in particular, The Magician's Nephew, was published last almost. okay. so we've got published in the 50s. So we've got 50 to 1956 is when these books were published. Um, So during this time, we've got the 1950s. We need to consider that. Sorry, I'm like falling over my tongue. We need to consider the time period almost always when we're reading books. That's that's a personal opinion of mine, but um, I think it's something that everyone should probably adhere to is to, you need to always pay attention to when stuff was written. It is very important to context or whatever. So this is where it comes into play just real, real quick side note. And then we'll jump back into what my main point is, but considering when books are written are always important because in my mind, I imagine all fiction as historical fiction, unless it's like a specific, genre elsewhere, if that makes sense. But in a sense, every single piece of fiction is historical fiction. And that's why um, that's why it's so important when we're trying to figure out what really happened in history, that we read a surplus of other perspectives that were published in history. So that's why it was important to read not only like plant owners um, and slave owners, writings and journals and such from the past but to also find if there were writings by black men and women or if there were any writings from slaves or if there were any writings from women maybe during that time who felt oppressed at the time or who spoke honestly about what they saw and witnessed so it's important to like read all of those kinds of things those obviously are like on real accounts but often in senses in fiction especially it's when Okay, here's what... I'm getting sidetracked. It's okay. It's okay. This is my podcast. I can do stuff like this. Um, So historical fiction in and of itself, that genre itself is known to be historical fiction because it takes part in a certain part of history and has historical facts represented within it. So in this sense, it would be like, oh, maybe there's a gay person in the 50s. That could be historical fiction because maybe, you know, like it's during a time of McCarthyism and he's experiencing that in the story. Um, even though he's not a real person or he's not based on a real person. So that could be historical fiction. Um, Another part of what I mean exactly when I say that all fiction is historical fiction is that there's always going to be some sort of subconscious beliefs, ideas, represented in modern fiction or any kind of fiction that is representative of how things are viewed that day. So if I wrote a book in maybe 2005... We'll say this, this is like very light historical fiction. But if I wrote a book that was published in 2005, and I just considered it like a regular contemporary fiction, it's just about a girl who goes to high school in 2005. If I wrote that in that time period, Not knowing that this is something that would be like time relics, I would probably write down, oh, she got her CD player or oh, she got her MP3 player and listened to this. And then she also like went downstairs and turned on her blah, blah, blah and watched a little bit of like, whatever MTV. I don't know if that's too outdated, honestly, for 2005. I don't remember what happened in 2005. But, you know, be like, oh, like she listened to Beyonce's Countdown album or she listened to... I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, single ladies just came out, you know, stuff, something like that. If I were to write any kind of even just a singular sentence of like, Oh, this, this, and this happened. Then it's like already we're warped into this time period of where we know, okay, this is during a time where like, maybe this election was really stressful right now. And now like your theme that you're writing about is how to trust political leaders. You know, that could be something too. any, any books basically that come out, especially now in 2020 or 2021, could be very representative of maybe the George Floyd situation where people are just um, having common themes that like what it means to be of a different race other than white or what it means to be white during this time or what it felt like to receive this news, or my story is going to have troubles of race and racism, stuff like that, or poverty issues, or electoral issues, or presidential debates, you know, anything kind of like that, that has kind of a light theme on who to trust, how to trust it, whether it's political power or not, whether it's race or racism or not, that kind of stuff showing up in fiction. That's the part that I mean when I say it's kind of like a historical fiction. And therefore, that's why I say it's always important to look when that art or when that author published that piece of work so that's important to me i just want to like bring that up where i'm like oh because it's also helpful too if they say some words that are kind of offensive then you're like i can't believe someone's even writing this in a book that keeps us from being hypercritical if we dissect that book and think okay no one actually learned that that word was wrong until this time period or like at the time that was politically correct and now some debates have arisen and you know there's been different perspectives or there was a poll i don't know and now that's not a word that we're going to use anymore or that phrase in particular is a bit outdated we decided that was offensive in 2013 why is this person writing this um it's important for us to criticize that because that also keeps us from doing that hypercritical thing where you think this guy is super like look what he the phrases that he used the words that he used whatever and if it's only like the intentions are good and they only use those certain phrases at certain times and then later it's like we look up this person and they're just like still an advocate for like people's rights then it's then it keeps us from being hypercritical and just does a bit more research honestly so that we're focusing on what on what really matters, basically. So the reason I bring this up is because I was reading a nonfiction book the other day, and it's the people's history of the United States. Some of the phrases in it, I was like, that's questionable that you actually wrote these people in this way, or that you described it this way. But then I look at the publication, and that was like published in like the 60s, basically. So I'm like, okay, I trust that this person, given the time that they took to write this book, is educated enough to keep researching and go with the times and be progressive and change their ways once they learn the right or wrong way to say things like we should all do. So anyways, rolling back into this, uh, this was published in the 1950s. That's something we wanna keep in the back of our head if we see certain phrases or certain maybe popular themes that might've happened in the 1950s. Uh, Something that's important for us to look up perhaps before we continue on to The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is what was happening politically Um, I'm gonna write this down. What was happening politically in the 1950s? Uh, Culturally, maybe, maybe there were some new um, protests or events going on. Basically, like if, just imagine, okay, like as soon as you see when something was published, just imagine um, a tabloid, a shitty magazine and a really good magazine or a shitty journal and a really, really good journal. Um, think about those two different journals, whatever ones you hold in your mind, and think about what their headlines might be during that specific year. That's how I liked. That's how I like to view it, and then just keep that in the back of your mind while you're reading the book what were people afraid of at this time what were the people divided against at this time that's always something that we want to keep in the back of our head even if we don't feel like it's being super represented in the book subconsciously it's always important to know that those things were happening at the time in case they do arise or say oh here's that theme of separation between church and state and here it is again right here in the book as like lucy is talking about this or you know stuff like that And then the other question that I just want to dive into real quick, um, and then I'll do like a quick summary and then we'll just have to wrap that up just because the plot is a bit too intense. I want you guys to read this and, um, you know, kind of work with me, I guess, on why or how this book is written and... What the importance of it necessarily is because this is a really broad concept so the other question we want to dive into after we think about when is why so most of the time the why would be connected to the when so if we think about the 1950s we think about maybe how important it was that c.s lewis was critiquing christian doctrine at this time in the in the 50s when a lot of things were being questioned and fought for at the time um, but the other concept would be we can phrase this as why why would Cs Lewis think it's necessary to have another biblical retelling of a story in a children's version and something that's more complex? Why would he think it's necessary to have something that's a bit more longer, a bit more drawn out, a bit something that has a bit more um, emotional intelligence and e- empathy um, in this children's story of a biblical retelling of a biblical story that is known to be something that is a bit i don't want to say heartless but a bit more brutal or something that originally i assume was written mainly for adults that i think that's probably like the main part that kind of surprises me is just that it's like i don't believe that we should gatekeep from children any kind of stories necessarily um unless obviously it's like stephen king stuff obviously we're not gonna tell our kids that but in terms of religious doctrine does it make sense to me to gatekeep from children who are also um incorporated into that christian doctrine but at the same time why does he think it's necessary okay this is this is the part this is the part that's always confused me a little bit is that i know in biblical times it's always been a thing that certain people can read the bible you know until until it started to break off into separate doctrines but if that were the case, I'm like, why are we so eager to tell all of our kids the stories of Genesis and have them memor? Like, I have some stories from Genesis like memorized down to the down to the core. I know the names. If someone came up to me and said a specific biblical name, I could tell you the story of that child in that story or whatever the heck is happening. So like, I'm I'm pretty like good with biblical stories, um, but I'm like, but why? Like, I never learned the importance of it, and this could be one of the reasons of why. C.S. Lewis might think it necessary to retell stories in this way, shape, or form. This is exactly also why I bring up, yet again, I haven't, I don't think I've even said this since like maybe the first or second episode when we were first talking about a series of unfortunate events, but this is why I always tell you guys that reading is also a form of co-parenting. So most of the lessons that we learn is from watching and witnessing others and When we're reading books, especially as children, we are watching and witnessing others honestly endlessly on all the time. We're watching a surplus of different figures, evil people, cruel people, really amazing people, really complex people, people who are just like us, you know, just back and forth all the time. We're witnessing all these different characters in terms of biblical stories. I never felt any emotional attachment to any of those characters. So my reason why, at least, is to... What I think why C.S. Lewis thinks is necessary is because there isn't an emotional retelling of any kind of characters in the Bible that grips us in a way um, that New Testament stories do, per se. You know, like I have not, in, in a sense, I think, not in a sense, for sure the lion in this story, just as like a heads up, is meant to be representative of God in in some way, shape, or form. Um, And I say that because God is like a complex idea as well in Christianity, but the lion in this thing is supposed to be representative of God, um, but he's an actual character. I've never once witnessed reading the Bible and watched God interact with people in a way that carried a lot of emotional weight with it or a lot, you know, it's always been like a mystery. And I know that's the point. The point is that God is a mystery to all people in the most wondrous way. Um, and he's definitely like that in this way. But in this way, he's a character that walks around. He's an animal that walks around and has this certain air. I I remember even reading this in the Bible, like reading stories in the Bible, thinking, but what did it feel like? How was it like being there? What did it What did it smell like? What What did it look like? Like I just I always want to know, you know, especially when I was at a time when I was in complete awe of how Jesus was and how Jesus interacted with people. I, was, I felt like I was always being told things, but I wanted to understand. So I wanted to be like, but what was it like standing near Jesus? And I can only imagine, you know, stuff like that. Or what did it feel like to be next to a God? If if the Bible were a story all itself and not Christian doctrine, I would be so pissed because I'm like, but what did it, what was the setting? What did it feel like? How did your heart feel? How did your chest feel? Could you feel your toes at the time? You know, just like stuff like that. So that's essentially what I think C.S. Lewis is trying to give to us here is he's trying to connect the emotional empathy and wonder of fiction telling in with christian doctrine at the same time to kind of describe this is how i imagine that it would feel to be around this this is what i imagine the emotional intelligence of this aspect of this story to be similar to if it happened to me or if it happened to children and what better way to have it happen to children than anyone else we do have adults in this story in the magician's nephew and their reaction is very all over the place when they interact with aslan aka god Um, but when they interact with aslan or the animal that is representative of god uh, the adults have a very different reaction from the kids and the reason behind this obviously being that kids are more Um, receptive to wonder. I don't know if that's like a bit of a too Piscean way to say things or too you know elegant in a a sense but they're more receptive to wonder and that's why I think that he chose children. So anyways we're going to dive into the quick plotline real quick. I have much more to say about uh, Christian doctrine and like how we think this goes per se hand in hand with these specific stories. Um, but in terms of my opinion and what my thoughts are, uh, coming from my background, this is what I think so far, but okay. So here's the plot line of it. The plot line of it is we've basically essentially got two kids. Um, they are neighbors and they become friends pretty quickly because they are children and they live next door to each other and they want to have some fun. So one day they decide it might be a good idea to climb up into the attic of one of their houses because this is an area of England where, um, the houses are conjoined by their attics somehow. I think they're all like, it's kind of like an apartment complex essentially, um, but with townhomes. So they think it's a good idea to climb up to the attic and walk along the top of all of the houses to try and get to an abandoned house. They want to explore an abandoned house that's been abandoned for years. So they decide to do that. They Once they think that they've gotten there, they get down from the attic and open the door to this abandoned house and discover, oh, like we actually didn't go as far as we thought. We're in uh, one of our houses or whatever. They're in Diggory's house. And Diggory goes, oh, we didn't go farther enough. We just ended up in my own house. Well, Diggory has this uncle named Uncle Andrew. And Uncle Andrew is a bit different. He's a bit sporadic and wacky. And all the time, Diggory's aunt uh, tells Diggory to not really interact with Uncle Andrew. Uncle Andrew will ask questions or say things that don't really make sense to Diggory. And he's like, what are you talking about? And every time the aunt will come and interrupt and be like, okay, don't listen to him. He's crazy. Just just go to your room. Just leave Uncle Andrew alone. Please don't go up to his office. So she's always saying stuff like that. So flash forward We end up in Uncle Andrew's office and Diggory's like, oh, we should probably leave. Like my aunt really doesn't like when I'm like up here. Um, You know, Uncle Andrew's a bit different or weird. It doesn't really make sense. He's kind of loony. And his little friend, um, what is her name? Polly. Polly is the friend. Uh, Polly basically is like, well, you know, like we can stay a little bit. Like, let's look around the office or something. So they look around. Um, and then eventually they're like, okay, let's leave. Uncle Andrew finds them in there, asks them what they're doing, essentially tricks them into sending them to another world. Turns out Uncle Andrew is a magician. He has these set of rings that teleport you to a different location, though he doesn't know where because he's too much of a coward to try it himself. So he sends the kids, um, he sends Polly without her knowing. Uh, this upsets Diggory. And then he says, well, Diggory, looks like you're going to have to go back since you're such a good person. Looks like you're going to have to go get your friend. And Diggory being a good person is like, yeah, I guess you're right. You've manipulated me. I'm aware of that, but I need to go save my friend. So he goes, puts on the ring and enters another dimension of sorts. And they end up in this area. This is the part that's kind of important. Um, they end up in this area that's basically called like a place between world. I don't know if it's meant to be Um, A sort of like limbo or something like that Um, but it's or like a purgatory maybe even Um, but it's a place between worlds and in this place between worlds it essentially looks like a forest extremely peaceful easy to forget why you're there easy to be present in the moment not worry about anything that's going to happen next or ever again Um, and that's the way it's described within these kids so it's this green forest and there's all these little tide pools Um, Or ponds, per se. There's all these little ponds decorated throughout the entire place. Um, And what the kids find out is that if you put on your rings and you enter a different pond, you enter a different world that's similar to their own, just like a completely different place. So this is like a big teleportation landmark area. It's basically a big airstrip for going to different places. Uh, So they jump into one of the ponds. They're like, well, it doesn't hurt to just test out one of these ponds. They jump into a pond. Um, and enter a world that has been dead for years. There are these big, massive, humanoid-type statues that are in this abandoned castle area um, with a riddle on it that says, hey, like, if you're curious enough, go ahead and ring this bell. Uh, bad stuff is likely to happen when you do it, um, but it will be fantastic stuff, too. Otherwise, go about your merry way and don't ring this bell. So... Uh, Diggory says, well, I didn't want to ring the bell, but now I really want to. And Polly doesn't want to, and they're fighting over all of this. Um, and Diggory ends up ringing the bell and one of the statues awakens and she describes herself as the red queen completely evil. She kind of talks about how many people she's killed, the kind of lives she's ruined. She mentions that she's the reason why the whole world is abandoned. That world in particular is abandoned or doesn't have people on it. And I think it's just over something like she felt like killing people or like people were defying her. So she had to teach them a lesson or something and now there's no people left. So she's known as being kind of like this destroyer figure. She um, asks if she can go back with them They don't want to bring her back. Diggory is in awe of her. Polly says she doesn't trust her. Um, Somehow she ends up like she holds on to one of them as they put their rings on and they all end back at the place between worlds. Um, So this is like another point in the story where Diggory finds out, oh, okay, you don't have to wear a ring. You just have to have someone touching you. And then that person has to be wearing a ring. So they end up at the uh, the place between worlds. Um, and then they try to go back to their world and she latches on again and ends up in the human world, in the earth world. Because after that, Diggory and Polly are like, let's GTFO. This was like kind of a traumatizing experience. Um, we just want to go home. So they try to go home. She latches on to one of them, ends up in the world Uh, Uncle Andrew is enamored with her, but also she keeps wrecking stuff. She steals cars. She, like, destroys property. Like, she's just, like, not fit. It's pretty comedic. It's just because, like, it's just, like, imagining something, like, imagine bringing King Arthur into New York City. That's essentially what it is. So he's basically just like, oh, like, bow down to me and do this for me or whatever. And everyone's like, um, you need to pay your taxes. So, like, she... She's trying so hard to like rule the world, but at the same time everyone's like this someone needs to arrest this woman. They don't care how large or how different she is. She doesn't have any powers in this location, so um she basically just causes chaos. Anyways, bottom line, uh the kids end up managing to get the queen. Their main goal now and the main mission in this book is to get the queen back to where she came from. So they somehow end up, not somehow, throughout throughout the plot. If you read the book, there's a plot line, I swear, um, with dialogue and everything. But they managed to get back to the place between worlds um, with the queen and also with Uncle Andrew and a random cabman. The cabman is not very important right now, but a random cabman and his horse who were fighting with her as they tried to bring her back. So they all end up at the place between worlds. Uh, they're confused because her pond that she came from is closed up and dry now. And it's because that world has ended. She's completely destroyed it. So now there's nothing left. There's nothing for her to go back to. Um, it's important to note that she is like a shell of a human for some reason when she's in this place between worlds. Um, and then when she's in other worlds, she's very vibrant and powerful and leading and very, just very arrogant and everything. But when she's here, she literally turns white Um, She becomes like a shell of a person. She turns into, basically just imagine if you've read Harry Potter, imagine Tom Riddle to Lord Voldemort kind of status, but like when Voldemort didn't have any powers. So in other worlds, she's Tom Riddle. She's like sexy. She's beautiful. She's powerful. She has all of her shit together, vibrant bread, lipstick, whatever. And then when she's in this place, a place between worlds, uh, she becomes basically like a shell of a person. She's like, I need help. I need someone to take care of me, whatever. Very strange. Um, and it's in this section where Uncle Andrew kind of loses his attraction to her. Uh, it's so messed up. They're they're both horrible. As you can tell, they're both horrible people. So Anyways, bottom line, uh, they end up going to a different world and it's completely dark. They just dump into a random pond. So like we need to dump this girl somewhere. So they jump into a random pond. Um, it's pitch black there. And then slowly, bit by bit, things start to come to life. So slowly, a light starts to form. And then slowly, there's grass. And then slowly, there's wind. And then there's trees. And then there's animals awakening and stuff like that. And basically, what we're witnessing is God, or that world in particular is God, and... Um, birthing the world, if that makes sense. So that is the part that comes from the creation of the world, essentially. This is the part that's going to happen that happens with the retelling of Genesis. So from this point on to the end of the book, we get a retelling of um, the creation of the world being like, and then there was light and then there was the ocean and then there was water and then there was animals then there was life, you know? So we get all of these witnesses, but in an emotional, it's an emotional retelling of what it would feel like to witness a world being created before you. Honestly, beautiful. I'm getting choked up thinking about it. 10 out of 10, the way that it was written is just chef's kiss. It is 10 out of 10. So good. Um, so the way that this is written, he just, you know goes in depth about these kids being in the presence of a god and witnessing things coming to life and the way that they feel which is what i wanted and that wasn't i wanted that to be included in the bible but it's not but the way that they feel when they're around aslan or when they're around their god which is they're afraid this was my favorite way that c.s. lewis could have described it because i would not as an author as someone who likes to write i have no idea how i would even write what it would feel like to witness a God in my presence who has a moral compass that is good and who cares for people and has immense love or whatever, or at least the God mentioned in Christian doctrine. I have no idea how I would feel in the presence of that. So the way that he writes it, the way that he describes it is essentially a combination between a feeling of i'm so afraid like them being terrified it's a lion for heaven's sake it's it's a lion so it's like that alone is scary they're not even afraid that it's a lion per se but added on to that he's in the shape of a lion um but these kids are terrified but also they keep having this recurring thought in their heart where they're like i'm scared but please look at me i want you to look at me in my eyes i need you to look at me which like i have chills right now just thinking about it cuz that's like that's a feeling that has no singular word in english language i feel like almost maybe it does i don't know but it's it's basically awe in a way but like fearful awe it's so incredible the way that he describes this for someone to be so afraid of something but at the same time begging it to interact with them it's it's intense it's the way the way that it's written is so beautiful But at the same time, we're going to flip over to the adult section. Uncle Andrew is nothing but terrified, um, doesn't understand what's happening before him. Just think there's a lot of chaos happening. Like, what? Suddenly trees are popping out of the ground. Everything's crazy. So he's being openly critical and trying to find logical solutions to things. And he's being not receptive to wonder is what I'm trying to get at. Which Still sounds cheesy when I say it, but that's what I'm trying to get at. So he's not open to that. He's very confused the whole time. Um, diggory ends up getting sent on this quest to go and get some fruit for something he hopes it'll make his mom better it's just like then there's this cute little voyage of him uh, traveling to go get some fruit from a specific tree and this is where the retelling happens the tree there um, the witch has found the tree first or the, the red queen or whatever she calls herself. Uh, she's already found the, the tree because she went off and wandered herself and like ran around in all different places. So she already found the tree. She says the tree makes you very powerful. There's a sign on the gate that says basically don't eat of the tree or else like you will decay. You will get stronger, but you will also get weaker basically. Um, but she's been like, nom nom nom. She's been eating all of those fruits all day long um so she does not care she only cares about getting stronger and stronger especially because she sees that aslan or the lion has has the power in this world and she clearly does not so she's wanting to flex really hard she's trying to eat as much so that she can like be up to par as the lion she can feel that she's afraid of him but she can't describe it um and then she offers uh, fruit to diggory and degree essentially says no so um this was like a retelling a reverse retelling i feel like of the adam and eve he does not take a bite of the fruit he does not interact with her or listen to her there are times when he feels really strongly towards listening to her but um decides against it has a good moral compass of right and wrong and such so he just does what he's told and he comes right back so I think this part is important. I'm just going to stop with the summarization there just because I feel like this is the main important part is we almost get a full, complete retelling of the biblical story, but instead we get one that's like reversed. So now we're imagining a story where what would happen to our human species? What would happen to this religious doctrine if Adam looked at the snake and said like, nah, and then just didn't do it? Then how would our moral compass be established? Then... How will we learn right from wrong then how would we instead be punished by something else that we do or when what other ways can we betray um, this situation if it's not from that one simple act so c.s lewis is trying to make this way more complex which i appreciate because humans are complex i've always despised how simple it sounded in the bible maybe it did at the time during the old testament but we are complex now we can't just say like yes or no it's everything's not black and white so um this is what I think CS Lewis's main goal of why he's doing this is to show the complexities of it to make a gray area in between that Christian doctrine that tells us when things are okay to do and when they are not um in a sense that it matters when and where and why um cuz it's not black and white so <laughs> so I I personally think that that was his main goal um this this book was a lot for me to process, um, just in terms of like, what is he, What is, it took me a long time to say why. It took me a long time to say why would he write this, if that makes sense. Um, so anyways, okay, the next book, I know because i are like reaching kind of my time limit here, but the next book we're going to read is going to be um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I promise I will try my best to put stuff out. I'm sorry, stuff that I've been publishing has been very sporadic and all over the place and not consistent in any way, shape, or form. Um, but, you know, I kind of had this, like, this is, I mean, you guys, you know, you don't have to finish the rest of this episode if you don't feel like it. Um, but the main explanation why this took me forever, number one, is just because, I struggled with my thoughts for a while. The other reason is that, like, then I got a job. So I started working more often and um, had to kind of figure out my schedule of when I'm supposed to have time. So I have days off now. So that is why I'm recording now. And then the other reason is that I wanted to like, I didn't want to be irritated while reading it. It got to a point where I would like I was thinking about stuff I wanted to read. And then I thought about stuff that I wanted to read for the podcast. And then in comparison with what I wanted to read, um, this, like, reading Narnia was, like, irritating to me. I was like, oh, like, it felt like homework almost. Even though it's fun homework, it still felt like homework to me. And I didn't want to feel like that. So um, I took some time to just basically binge and read some books that I had been wanting to read for a long time. That way I can fall in love with reading again and be excited about it when I come on the podcast. Um, And I am excited about it. It worked. I'm excited about it again. So... Anyways, bottom line, I, you know, I hope everyone's reading the books that they want, whether they're kids books or not, it does not matter whatsoever. So uh, I hope everyone has a great weekend. I'm sorry, this is this isn't even being published on a Thursday. But um, I appreciate you guys listening if you are still willing to listen and journey through me with Narnia. So anyways, I hope everyone has a good day. I love you all. Thank you for listening and i will see you in the next episode for the lion the witch in the wardrobe hopefully in two weeks if not sooner bye